Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Welcome back. This is episode two of the Four Hour Chef. Somewhat of a cookbook, but mostly an instruction manual of deconstructing the fucking world, learning anything, and becoming immortal. And so in the first episode, we introduced this whole goddamn concept. Tim had a lot of cool facts that we, we trust. He's so cool, but he also explained how he got here how he became the guy who got obsessed with learning and it started by snorting drugs actually at up at at princeton and then now he's a master at learning anything and so he's walking us into his dis methodology and so dis is a is a mnemonic and um i I think i've mentioned on here uh, a lot (laughs) that it took me a long time to understand how to learn and i seriously thought i was an idiot for a while and I still do have idiot tendencies but part of the reason was I got I got really good at mnemonics in high school and I was able to just like 80 20 the shit out of all of my seven AP classes be a varsity wrestler and still lift because mnemonics are basically memory tricks rooted in how the brain remembers information so there's lots of examples like making something into a song is an example. Like, why can I remember the national anthem, but I can't remember like my company's stated mission statement? Hmm. Okay, it's because national anthem's in a song. You know, rhyming. You know, why why can I remember rap lyrics, uh, but I can't remember? I don't know. Whatever. You get it. Um, there's more in-depth methods too, though. Uh, like the Roman room method. So that was used by orators, so speakers. So in in Rome, like two thousand years ago. Uh, they'd go speak at the Senate or whatever, and they'd talk for three hours without notes, all memorized, all from memory. And so what that does is that, that uses the fact that we're way better at spatial memory than verbal. So think of just like trying to remember random shit versus like think about the last sporting event you went to. Now think what are, what are all the memories that you have from that event? Okay, if you truly thought about it, and so the Roman room method, like, you anchor information to those memories sequentially. So I'll give you an example. So let's say that you need, you're going to go to the grocery, you need pasta, tomato sauce, 22 ammo, steak, and whiskey. Very good things to get at the grocery store. So if we're trying to remember this, let's put those things into a location we know really well. So let's say you're going to open your door to your, to your front door. Okay, feel yourself because because the more senses you involve in this memory, like even disgust or like like making something sexual or hilarious, uh, that'll help you remember it. So let's say you you picture yourself getting home, you turn the doorknob to your front door, you grab the handle, and as soon as you grab it, you feel like a wet, goopy squish, and you you pull your hand up and you look at it, and you're fucking disgusted because there's old noodles and sauce on your fucking hand and you're like oh god it's it's slimy yuck okay so you you like open the door to get in you use your elbow and and you know you take your shoes off because that that's what you do and then you immediately step down and you step on a fucking 22 bullet and it goes into your fucking heel all the way in and you know it's a 22 because it's it's all the way in there Feel the pain in your mind. Feel the pain. You know, so you limp to the fridge. So you got this nasty fucking hand. You're limping to the fridge, and you look on the floor, and you see a chalk outline, like it's a like it's a crime scene, but it's a steak, a T-bone steak in a, tro- a chalk outline on the floor. So you walk to the kitchen, you see the T-bone steak in the in the outline, and uh, you're like, God damn it. Well, to console your restless heart, you go to the whiskey cabinet to get a drink. And you fall to the ground in fucking sadness because you don't have any whiskey. So that is that's the Roman room method, okay? Because imagine you know someone says, "Hey, I need you to get these five things," and you're like, "Okay," and you know you could remember three of them, 
because it's not tied to anything. But you'll you'll remember that uh, you know okay, touch the doorknob. Oh shit, I need spaghetti sauce and noodles. Walk in. Oh shit, 22 bullet in my heel. Okay, I need 22. You walk in the kitchen. Ooh, what was a dead steak? Oh, I need steak. Then you're like, I'm so sad. Let me get whiskey. I don't have whiskey. I need the whiskey. So the whole fucking point is, you know, five things that are tied to a location and they're sequentially tied to each other. And so it's actually really insane how much information that you can like quickly remember by doing this stuff. And I actually have stopped really doing this because it's very useful for memorization, but like for critically thinking through problems, it's not as useful. But I mean, you can attach massive amounts of information into spatial locations. Like I, I, I would remember 140 psychology concepts uh, <laughs> before a test. And it's, it's basically like I had a cheat sheet. And uh, so I, I got, you know, like a fucking five on the AP psychology exam, even though my, my teacher, and I mean this in the nicest way, was less qualified to teach than a boar hog with tits. I, I, I basically cheated my way through school using mnemonics. Um, and so it took me a long time actually to like really learn how to learn, not just learn how to memorize, but Tim, so I say all that because Tim deeply understands mnemonics and he's probably gone 40% deeper into them than me. So he isn't just speaking like his method, uh, by building some acronym so we can remember his method. He, like he, he truly understands how to learn and encode mnemonics. So the recipe for learning any skills contained in the acronym DIS. How to remember it? Ah, the 1980s cultural contribution to modern English. Just remember DIS with an extra S. Here's the sequence. Yeah, and, and so the I is really just so that the acronym works. So it's really DSSS. Uh, so we'll go deep in the method later, but D stands for deconstruction. What are the minimal learnable units that I should start out with? Like, so what are those, what are the 20 fucking components of the entire skill? Next is selection. Which 20% of the blocks should I focus on for 80% or more of the outcomes? Next is sequencing. In what order should I learn and stack these blocks? And then last is stakes. How do I set up stakes, create real consequences to guarantee I follow the program? So... That's like his high-level method. We'll go through each one of them. But um, as he's flowing through this method, he's got a few secondary tools that he arms us with. So like this is the house, but he's going to give us a, a, some tools. He's going to give us a hammer, a drill, a nine millimeter pistol. There are several secondary principles that I use constantly. And he encodes these secondary principles in another acronym, CAFE. So CAFE, and, and I am actually going to build you guys a Roman room method mnemonic to remember all of this. And it'll be so easy. An idiot can do it. And then everybody will be like, you're a genius. And be like, no, I just listen to the goddamn Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Cafe. Compression. Can I encapsulate the most important 20% into an easable, easily graspable one-pager? The A is silent. F. Frequency. How should I practice? Can I cram? What should my schedule look like? What is the minimum effective dose for volume? E, encoding. How do I anchor the new material to what I already know for rapid recall? So acronyms like DIS and CAFE or the Roman room method are examples of encoding. And because I fucking feel like it, I got a special treat for you priests. Like I said, I'm gonna build us a mnemonic where you can quickly and easily remember this whole method, carry it wherever you go, like you've got a, a cheat sheet, and ultimately download Tim's method like it's the matrix. We're gonna build on this throughout the whole series. So we'll start. So we got dis and cafe, okay? Imagine, you're going to a cafe. Let's say you're going to a Starbucks. Think of a Starbucks near you, okay? I'm picturing one. I'm actually picturing one back in Lebanon. Okay, that's a new Starbucks, I like that one. And you go to a big sign, you're walking up to the Starbucks, and you look up, and you expect to see the little lady. But you see a sign that just says, Cafe. And you're like, that's weird. What fucking idiot named their restaurant Cafe? <laughs> like, not even John's Cafe or Satan's Cafe. That's like whiskey brand whiskey. What the hell is going on? But you're like, well, I probably serve coffee, so let me go in. So you, so you see Cafe. Just that, that's the sign. Like, that's weird. But as you open the door, 
you hear two guys engaged in heated yo mama battles standing on the tables dissing each other yo mama's so stupid she stared at a cup of orange juice for 12 hours because it says concentrate yo mama's so fat her car has stretch marks Ooh, cold-blooded your mama's so ugly she threw a boomerang and it refused to come back oh god your mama's so poor the ducks throw bread at her you get the idea so if you think about it, that's the start of the pneumata okay that's the cafe you look at the sign you're like oh cafe then you go in to the cafe and you see two guys dissing each other with yo mama jokes and that that encapsulates diss okay there we go so where are we going but well, we're going to do a deep analysis of his diss methods with the helpful tools of cafe all tied up and remembered by that idiotic thought experiment, which just keeps getting idioticer. So you will be able to remember this forever. For those brave souls who dare enter here, read on to see how deep my favorite rabbit hole goes. D. Deconstruction. Exploring the great unknown. Some author said, writing a novel is like driving at night in the fog. You can see only as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. Deconstruction is best thought of as exploration. This is where we throw a lot on the wall to see what sticks, where we flip things upside down and look at what the outliers are doing differently and what they're not doing at all. First and foremost, it is where we answer the question, how do I break this amorphous skill into small manageable pieces? There's four tools of deconstruction. I'm not like including these in damn mnemonic. It's just like, just use your fucking mind. But this is helpful. Okay, I'm sorry, Tim. I'm just so fired up here. I love your book. In this chapter, we'll look at four primary tools. Each will be explained using real world skills for context. Reducing, interviewing, reversal, and translating. So reducing. Well, Reducing is, is this is where we we defragment this shit into the most easily understandable component parts. So as an example, let's look at Japanese characters. So Japanese writing, the ecstasy <laughs> of finding my kanji posters. So that's when he found the the 1900 whatever uh, kanji. So like if you know these, you know Japanese was followed by the crushing task of learning well 1945 characters. That's 81 times the English alphabet, and many Japanese characters have more than 15 strokes. Shit. Each stroke has to be learned in a specific order so that you can write and read it. These 1945 quickly become overwhelming. Fortunately, I was required to take a calligraphy class, and I learned that each character can be broken into components. Far left, top, middle, etc. These Lego pieces, referred to as radicals, form the building blocks from which all the kanji are made. There's 214 radicals, and they are always written in one order. This turns an impossible task, learning 1,945 characters into one that some people can complete within two months. So he's saying, like with this reducing, this is like, what are the component buckets of the skill? Reduce it down to the core fucking building blocks of the skill. But it's hard to find these component parts. Tim says the key was peppering my calligraphy teacher with questions, which lead us to the next complimentary tool, interviewing. So, you know, you can't expect, because you don't know what you don't know. So he's saying now another tool of this deconstruction is interviewing. So Tim meets some dude named Nivy. They're drinking fucking sake. And at one point, Nivy randomly offered if you ever want to deconstruct basketball, sorry, if you want to deconstruct basketball, I have the DVD for you, Better Basketball. And Tim says, ever since seventh grade, uh, and I got told I dribbled like a caveman by my teacher, I'd written off basketball. Thanks, but no thanks. So three years goes by and, and Tim's at a basketball game and he says, I had an epiphany. Even if I had zero interest in playing basketball, Perhaps learning the fundamentals over a weekend would allow me to love watching it. That's when I asked Nivy to point me to the master, Rick Torbert, the founder of Better Basketball. Rick had coached entire teams to shoot better than 40% for three consecutive seasons. To put that in perspective, the last decade only one NBA team had come close to 40%. 
interviewing. So another way, uh, and so this is what we're like circling around, but another way to find those components is to ask really clever questions to experts. To dissect his unusual success, I started by emailing him interview questions, the answers to which I'll share with you shortly. But let's start with the general process. And this is where Tim loves to get too tactical. Like I know he says the 80-20 principle, but like he falls in love with the fucking method. So we're going to skim this really quick. But basically says create a list of people to interview. And so, um, you know, like let's say you're, you're going for high-level athletics. Use Wikipedia to find out who is the best or second best in the world five to ten years ago. So like is there a UFC fighter that's now like 46 and uh, lives in your city? Okay, because they probably know a lot, and you could probably interview them. Um, next, make contacts and provide context. Um, and he's saying like making it making it a like a reason for them to accept the meeting is good. Like just be good at sales. Okay, we got it. Um, but this is where it gets really helpful because he talks about now prepare your questions. Okay, when I was looking at ultra endurance for the four hour body, I sent different combinations of the below questions to people like Scott Jurek who won the Western States 100, a 100-mile race, seven times. Who is good at ultra running despite being poorly built for it? Who's good that shouldn't be? Who are the most controversial or unorthodox runners or trainers? Why? Who are the most impressive, lesser-known teachers? Have you trained others to do this? Have they replicated your results? What are the biggest mistakes and myths you see in ultra running training? What are the biggest wastes of time? What are your favorite instructional books and resources on the subject? If people had to teach themselves, what would you suggest they use? If you were to train me for four weeks for X competition and had a million dollars on the line, what would training look like? Eight weeks. And so Tim does that, gets some good answers, and he's successful at basketball. Yay! Those are some really fucking good points. Those are good-ass questions. Um, so, you know, at the highest level, we're just, we're just fragmenting this shit to the, to the fucking ends of the earth. But, um, you know, one way is you got to reduce it to all the component parts. And, and sometimes you don't even know what you don't know, so you got to interview people to help you figure out how to reduce it to the component parts. Uh, next is reversal. Maybe... The component parts that everyone thinks have to go together really don't. So he gives some bullshit method that you use to build a fire backwards, which probably is better, but I'm too disagreeable to believe him. Like, I build a lot of fires, man. I don't believe you. But um, read the book, decide for yourself. But uh, the principle, though, is what parts of a skill can you reverse? So like when you're learning swimming, maybe instead of starting by using a kickboard, you start without kicking at all. Because, yeah, man, if you've ever done a kickboard fucking workout where, like, all you do is you use a kickboard. And so, like, because you can relax with a kickboard, but you relax with your face and body in the water. And so, like, yeah, if, if you could breathe out of, like, your blowhole, that would work. But we don't have blowholes. So you end up having to kick hard as shit. And so if you do, if you, like, go try to learn how to swim, and for the first three weeks, you just use the kickboard and you get, like, a slightly paranoid drowning workout from hell uh yeah you're gonna quit so maybe you don't kick at all maybe you uh or, or maybe you're trying to learn russian but instead of starting with grammar or speaking or speaking maybe you just say no english allowed in this class or better yet fly your corpse to russia and live there for a year working in the kitchen so and i think the point here like, I think this is one of the least important ones, but I, I think, you know, having using critical thinking is like the most important, like, <laughs> let's think about it. But, you know, what are the component parts become way more clear sometimes when you switch the order of how things are typically done? Okay, so that's, that's reversal. And then the last is translating. So how can we understand the component parts based on some sort of skill we already have? So like for me, I'm fluent at German. So learning any germanic language i can pretty easily be like oh these entire categories are similar to german so then i've got this giant fucking mind map of german and then i just like tag shit to that and and, and tim agrees translating the grammar of any language 
there's some guy named Cardinal Giuseppe Mezzofonte, and he was called the devil. <laughs> I don't think I took very good notes for that, but yeah, he was called the devil. The charming Italian could speak 39 languages and by some accounts had been tested on 72 as arguably the world's most famous hyper polyglot. Damn it, Tim. That means extreme, really good net languages guy. Uh, he was also systematic. First, he learned languages in families. So that's what I was saying of the Germanic family, the Roman, romance language family. Uh, second, and related to deconstruction, instead of using grammar books, he had native speakers of each language recite the Lord's Prayer. This short passage, this this short passage, gave him an overview of nearly all important grammatical structures. So think about that. You could take any language, and by knowing what family it's in and knowing the Lord's Prayer, you could backwards engineer the grammar, and then it's just fucking brute force for the vocab. And so Tim gives his own example. Yay. So, but, and I'm being an asshole all the time. I'm sorry, Tim, but um, find something that you know really well. And then like, how can you map over this skill to what you already know? So like, if we look at rugby, um, this was about the time that I was reading this book and I was deconstructing skills. And I realized that I didn't know shit about rugby. I never played football, but I did play soccer and I did wrestle. And really the only similarity of rugby and football is tackling, but the super secret trick is football players were horrible at tackling. They led with their head, which is fine if you have a metal head, but it's not fine if you have a normal head. So the real way to tackle was more like a running double leg. And so I, I basically anchored rugby to the mind maps of soccer and wrestling. And uh, full disclosure, <laughs> I wasn't, at this point in my life, I wasn't mature enough to actually want to put in all the effort and, and do leadership and help the team win. So I just used those skills for my own. What? Um, and I would just rampage around and cause insane destruction. But that was what I did. I was like, oh, okay. This is just like, this is just like running wrestling. I got it. And so then he talks about how to like, how to taste stuff. And he's like, smell it like a dog. Got it, man. Just tell me what I need to do to become a dragon. So, uh, I don't know. Read the book, I guess. Sniff your food. Uh, he gives a lot of herbs. Speed it up, little buddy. Uh, okay, thank you. Sorry. I was prepping for this in the midst of my work day. I were, like, where my daily activities are just like cutting my fucking wrist and bleeding into my computer. And like, I would, I would take 15 minute breaks between meetings, like occasionally, like if I didn't, you know, if I didn't have anything on fire and I just, <laughs> I go like prep on this a little bit. And so forgive me if I got blood everywhere, but, um, that ends the deconstruction section. So this is where you're an idiot. Okay. You barely know anything, but your only goal is to sift through all the component parts of the skill and map them out. So at the highest level, this part of the disc process is where you whiteboard every single little component part of the skill. You understand the interrelationships, but you know, you're, you're getting everything out there. You interview people, you change your perspective, you do it backwards, and you're just generally not tied to what the status quo says. And for this section, all you're doing is mapping out what exists. Don't try to make any decisions yet. So that's, that ends deconstruction. Now, if we're, and, and, I'll pre and I promised you a mnemonic that'll weave all this through. Okay, so here we go. We're going to build on the previous mnemonic. Okay, if you remember, the previous mnemonic was you look up at the Starbucks and you see the sign cafe. And you're like, what a dumb fucking name. You walk in and you see two guys on the table yelling, yo, mama's so fat, Dora can't even explore her. And all of a sudden, the guy who just received that savage insult looks shocked, hurt, but then he starts to smoke. He turns a beautiful golden brown and he explodes, blood and brains everywhere. You actually get hit in the eye with an ear. What the fuck is going on in this, ca in this cafe? And that, that represents the first part of dis. okay? So you, you got the, the cafe uh, sign that, re that we'll remember cafe. And then we go in, the two guys yelling at each other, that, that, that encapsulates dis as a concept. But you watch one of them explode 
and you get hit in the eye with an ear, well, what do we want to do in the deconstruction section? We want to explode the skill into the fucking component parts. Okay, so that exploding body, that represents deconstruction. Onward to the next one. We're skipping the eye because it's just to make it work. S, selection. 80-20 and the minimum effective dose. Do as little as needed, not as much as possible. That's it? My dad had asked me. That's it, I replied with a smirk. My recommendations seemed too simple to work. Eat 30 grams of protein within 30 minutes of waking up. No more, I suggested. Actually, I insisted that he make no other changes to his diet or exercise. Now we're going to have an insertion of a Tim Ferriss fact. After four weeks, we tallied the results. His average monthly fat loss had gone from roughly 5 pounds to 18.75 pounds. Great job. But what he's illustrating is little, find those little small changes that make a big result. Don't optimize. Don't be like, okay, dad, what you're going to do is you're going to do a seven times a week program. You're going to track your macros and your calories, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't believe Tim, but whatever. Uh, minimum effective dose. The lowest volume, the lowest frequency, the fewest changes that get us our desired result is what I labeled the minimum effective dose. It's a broad concept that applies to almost any field. To master conversational fluency in any language, learn 1,200 words focusing on the highest frequency. So this is, this is fucking insanity and so true. Um, so he's saying, hey, any language, if you know these 1,200 words focusing on the highest frequency, like you're, you're pretty close to good. Um, you know, and maybe this is an example, I'm kind of making this up, but to rapidly improve at archery, Maybe it's 15-minute sessions three times per day, something like that. The marketing minimum effective dose. So there's this great article that, that Tim uh, loves called A Thousand True Fans, which basically says if you have a thousand true fans, you'll live forever with, you know, money won't be an issue for you. To reiterate what we've already covered, material beats method. The 20-volume Oxford Dictionary contains full entries for 171,476 words. <laughs> if we use colloquial colloquial and derivative terms like ginger, what, did he put that in there or me? Tim, calm it down. That number easily tops 250,000. Uh, at the end of this chapter, I've listed the top 100 most common words written in English. And this is where get ready for your mind to explode. It's a drop in the bucket a mere 0.06% of the total. Yet, the first 25, per, 25 words on the list make up roughly 33% of all printed material in English. What an insane presentation of the 80-20 principle. That's not the 80-20 principle. That's the 0.06%, 35% principle. That is the leverage Naval was talking about. The first 100 comprise 50% of all written material. If we were to expand the list to the top 300, that would make up all 65% of, of written material in English. So I would guess that like a well-educated, hardworking immigrant who, who just learns like 300 words and, and you know now knows 65% of, of all English, I would guess that they're probably like probably like the average person that lives in Louisiana. So like, they're fucking good. What you need to remember is 100 well-selected words give you 50% of the practical use of 171,476 words. Now, this quote is the theme to my life right here. Choose the highest yield material and you can be an idiot and enjoy stunning success. I mean, Imagine the work equivalent of this. Go, uh, okay, so maybe it's go find the data analytics equivalent of 100 words and then just use like being a good person, critical thinking, and trying your best to close the learning gap as fast as fucking possible, all the while making sales in a language you barely fucking know, hypothetically. <sighs> and so he, he talks about the, 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 you know, again, this is a cookbook, so he spends a bunch of time talking about the minimum effective dose of cooking, 
whatever. It's basically just like have a grill and a cast iron pan and bitch, you're good. Um, so that kind of ends the selection section. And I, I went through that pretty quick because, you know, us priests, go, go listen to the 80-20 the principles episode if you really want to. But um, that should sound pretty familiar. You know, the 80-20 principle, oh, holiest of holy principles, it's at work again, even in learning languages. So in deconstruction, you spaghetti blast the skill into the component parts using cleverness and, and Tim's advice. In selection, you very critically look through all those pieces to figure out what pieces are truly the most important. Be open-minded. Fuck the rules. Normality is what weak people call living and we all call it death. Rest in peace, Greg Blit. Be outrageously and uncomfortably focused on those key points to the level, you know, maybe you only study the fucking 100 words, even though everyone else is trying to learn 175,000 words. Then, what's the minimum effective dose? What's the 20% of the 20%? That is really fucking important. And so I know if I'm, if I'm holding my end of the bargain, if we're adding to the mnemonic, okay? And the, again, this is the thread that weaves through this whole fucking series, how to remember all of Tim's methods, okay? So his methods are cafe and dis, okay? So we're, we're walking to Starbucks. We look, we seek the sign cafe. That's a dumb fucking name. We open the door. We walk in. There's two guys on the table dissing each other that symbolizes diss one of them hits the other with a savage your mama joke and that dude actually explodes blood brains everywhere you get hit in the eye with an ear deconstruction now you see the crowd a true bacchanalia not seen since the days of the roman Colosseum. they raise the winner of the yo mama's battle hand above his head like an mma fighter and on the on the cafe's speakers you hear, you hear Bruce Buffer, and our new champion is selected. Anchor that raised hand to the concept of selection. You've been selected. You've been selected as the leader. Great. You need to select the 20%. Select the most important parts. So that is, that's how we'll remember selection. Okay. On to the next S of the DIS, D-I-S-S-S, sequencing. The magic of proper ordering. My first visit to American Kickboxing Academy to train with to train with Dave Camarillo was memorable, not because he was such a baller, which he was, but because his students were uniformly difficult to deal with. Sure, you had UFC champions. <laughs> look at this. Tim's in the know. Look at all the social proof. Man, he hangs out with the cool kids. But I also found that the lesser mortals were even more impressive blue belts with far less experience than me that's a very interesting way of saying that tim i wonder if you actually don't have your blue belt but you're trying to turn pretend <laughs> sorry dude uh <laughs> blue belts with far less experience than me were throwing arm bars from angles i'd never seen and exhausting me from postures i couldn't break i began to spot patterns first principles that dave's disciples had wired into their dna like marines reassembling guns blindfolded the positions were all the same. The pressure was the same. The 230-pound guys weren't brute-forcing things like I'd expected. They were attempting to fine-tune the same way that the 130-pounders were. Something was different. His students were infuriatingly reliable. In contrast, most world-famous black belts teach a hodgepodge of random techniques. Okay. There's no system. There's no clear progression. That's so fucking true. So, uh, especially in jujitsu. So it, you know, that's like the "Hey, brother, it's fine." To, like that, that attitude. So, like, I grew up in Taekwondo, and so that 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 is like deeply imbued with like the samurai martial art. Like fucking, hey, if you don't behave, we're gonna club you in the head. <laughs> so it's like, oh, oh God. you know what? I actually think I'd like to behave. But the whole martial art, how to teach it, uh, you know, how to learn it, it was codified. You know, each belt, at this belt you learn this, at this belt you learn this. Everyone had the same material. It was very clear how to get better. You know, one skill built on another skill. You know, you learn the sidekick, then the spin sidekick, then the jump spin sidekick. Jordy and I were in heaven. Jiu-Jitsu, on the other hand, no joke, felt like going into somebody's belly button and just pulling out whatever you fucking found. So classes would start with a warm-up, which included like 
shrimping around on the ground like fucking worms. Uh, you know, bullshit, crunches. Then we'd move into drilling. But it wasn't drilling like a wrestling team or taekwondo school would drill. Like specific moves with a means to an end. Just like whatever the instructor wanted to talk about. They would just teach you a move. They'd talk through it for 15 minutes. You'd have to sit there and like kind of fucking pay attention but also try not to fart or make funny jokes that would a be funny to everybody but the instructor and b would get you used as a torture dummy the next time that moves were demonstrated because like oh hey we're gonna do this submission on a shoulder hey troy has a shoulder and and especially if you just farted and you made a joke and you weren't like paying that good of attention uh, yeah (laughs) you just get tortured total belly button fuzz dave apparently had what other coaches didn't a logical sequence the neglected fine art of sequencing so some golfer says a lot of people think they have poor form when in fact it's their sequencing that's off dave camarillo differentiated himself by having something simple a well-designed progression each exercise built upon the previous and failure points were avoided. The progression won't allow you to fail in the early stages. There's no stress. Won't allow you. So that's like, that's like, uh, that's why Mark Ripito's starting strength linear progression is so fucking clever. It's squat, bench, deadlift, three sets of five, except for one set of five on the deadlift, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Start at a super lightweight. It's supposed to be light and go up five pounds a week you can run that shit for six months because there's never a time where you fail you know it's like the the first month you do archery or something all you have to do is practice your form and the only the only like left and right boundaries you need to have is hit the target you know so the skills are layered one at a time and so uh tim tim brings up how working memory is finite um you know so sometimes the issue for learning new skills is you've got to remember 47 different things and like no shit you fail and so uh, we learn a lesson you know it's the burden of working memory that makes something easy or hard and so it's no wonder he says that many people give up on cooking the good news is it's not your fault you're being forced to do cabs instead of abcs whatever i first met josh waitskin at a coffee shop having just read his second book the art of learning so that's a super good book, actually. We'll cover it. It's like this dude, Josh Waitskin, this uh, chess prodigy, child prodigy who grew up and was still like really good at chess as an adult. And uh, he wrote a book called The Art of Learning. And so Tim was all was thrilled. And, and giddy as a schoolgirl, he says. He says, after, fi- after 15 minutes of sipping coffee and getting acquainted, I was thrilled to realize that he dropped F-bombs as much as I did. He was no rain man, and I, I felt silly for half expecting him to be. Uh, if you've seen the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer, then you know of Josh. Uh, so he's wandering through some park at the age of six, and he became fascinated by blitz chess, so fast chess that street hustlers played. Uh, he watched and absorbed, um, and then he begged his mom to let him give, give it a shot. Uh, soon thereafter, dressed in Oshkosh overalls, he was the king of the hustlers. Think of that shit. This curious kid who all he has to do in the world and all he has to care about, his entire being is competing with grown men in chess. He gets adopted by the fucking street hustlers. Dude, I'm sure he saw some titties before he was eight uh, because, you know, dude, street hustlers and titties go together like peanut butter and jelly or labor unions and massive unemployment 20 years in the future. He was labeled a prodigy, a term he dislikes. Josh proceeded to dominate the world chess scene and become the only person to win the national primary, elementary, junior high, high school, U.S., cadet, whatever, a lot of chess tournaments. But the interesting thing is once uh, once Josh got so good at chess that he was just like crushing these hobos, uh, he got a teacher named Bruce. And uh, his Josh's teacher started their first class by taking Josh in reverse. The board was empty except for three pieces in an end game scenario, king and pawn against king. Through the micro, positions with reduced complexity, Josh was forced to learn the macro, principles. By limiting himself to a few simple pieces, he mastered something limitless. 
high-level concepts he could apply any time further. Most of my rivals, on the other hand, began by studying opening variations, which at first thought seems logical for a novice to study, positions that he or, see, he or she will see all the time. Why not from the beginning, though? The answer is quicksand. Once you start with openings, there's no way out. Lifetimes can be spent memorizing and keeping up with the evolving encyclopedia of chess openings. They are an addiction with a perilous psychological effect. It's a little like developing the habit of stealing the test from your teacher's desk instead of learning how to do math. You may pass the test, but you learn absolutely nothing. So this is actually crazy and I'm, I'm having epiphanies. Um, so like in Taekwondo, we had some combinations and, and we had to be able to do them well for our testing. But combinations were really used to like practice fundamentals and get the techniques correct for sparring. So all of our real like fighting training came from sparring. And that was low to medium contact, live fighting against other students with some constraints. Like, you know, you can't, can't kick them in the gooch or like gouge eyes and shit. Um, and so I was immersed in that method for like eight years before starting MMA. And then I started MMA and I had never really gotten exposed to that much boxing. So like I got good at boxing, but that was just because like I just practiced it and learned it on my own. I never had any formal training. I mean, I did like we did Taekwondo, but like our method was really, really good for kicking. And it was like, you know, good for punching but i got i basically just like learned it through like street fighting basically i don't know um but so like i'd go to mma and there'd be guys who came from boxing and in boxing the training methods are almost as set in stone as chess so i'd see these guys who had fucking honed these 10 combinations like to the point that they were diamond etched chainsaw blades but when we when we'd spar I'd have, you know, like so much more nuance and awareness and I'd pick them apart, uh, especially if kicking was allowed. Uh, but then occasionally I'd fall into one of those unfortunate positions where like they'd practiced jab, left hook, cross, and the timing and distance was like just happened to be right for them and wrong for me. And their pattern of jab, left hook, cross, fired and unfortunately fired perfectly on my face and i just like do so fucking horrible for a round uh but all that to say the sequence you learn something's important you know we started sparring as early as possible and like creativity and figuring it out and like yeah the technique is cool but like if something works fucking do it that you know that was what we did combos were just a means to an end uh, you know think of all the time i spent sparring compared to the combo people then they started sparring you know so when you're learning a new skill what could you do backwards from everyone else and the real goldilocks zone is if doing it backwards is like 40 percent more effective and you can just run that lead you have over everyone so much until it's impossible that they catch you now as we close out this episode still talking about sequencing tim gonna is gonna go tell us a story Okay, it's, a, it's an interesting time. It was after he just gotten broken up with. After living my life in 15-minute outlook increments from 2000 to mid-2004. Okay, that, that kind of hits a little close to home. I decided to travel the world with no structure and no schedule and no return date. The only plan was to go where the wind took me. Juan Manuel, a Panamanian I'd befriended in January 2005 acted as a gust of wind that would change my life. Argentina has the best wine in the world, the best steak, and the most beautiful women, and you can live like a king for pennies on the dollar. Sold. And that is how I ended up in Buenos Aires in February taking a tango class to escape the oppressive heat. Carolina, an assistant instructor, was my first tango partner and none too happy about it. She was 5'4", and 23 years old and dressed in what appeared to be no exaggeration a, a latex cat suit and so tim's like oh god i haven't seen a woman in a hundred years her opening was charming come on i don't have all day i have my own practice just grab me and let's get this over with and at those tim and at those words 
Tim was immediately erect. His eyes rolled into the back of his head. He started chanting in a weirdly snake-like language, doing calculations, deconstructing the situation like the robot he is. Tim, Tim so hard, must spend time with woman, must find legal way to stalk her, beep, boop, bop, must stalk, must stalk. Then a germ of an idea crystallized in his head. He's rich as fuck in Buenos Aires, and for the Argentine equivalent of $20,000, a mere $1,000 in, in the United States, he could pay enough money to this school that this teacher would be forced to work with him. So like Fifty Shades of Grey, except way less sexy and, and way more perverted and awkwardly mongoloiding around. Can you believe autocorrect doesn't think that's a word? Tim resolves to enter into an unattainable goal that guarantees at least five months of skin-to-skin -skin contact with this goddess. He would win the upcoming Tango World Championships. Looking at the other men and imitating as best as I could, I tentatively placed one hand in hers and delicately wrapped my other forearm around her back. Not good enough. She spat out, ugh, as if I'd just taken a dump on the floor. She threw her arms up in disgust. It knocked me off balance and almost forced my mega head to butt her like a ram. He's one of us. Hands placed on her hips, she yelled over the music as an announcement to the group. This guy's built like a goddamn mountain and he's grabbing me like a fucking Frenchman. Everybody broke into laughter. This lasted several minutes. Tim, still erect and mistaking this laughter at him for laughter with him, thinks he just made his first friend. Carolina turned around to face me expressionless. Let's go, I still have to help the others. Humiliated and angry, my Spanish inadequate, but still harder than a dwarven ale. Oh, God. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's in quotes, but I don't think he said that. Uh, but I'm going with it. Humiliated and angry, my Spanish inadequate, but still harder than a dwarven anvil. I crushed her. I had no master plan. Squeezing her until her eyes popped out like a stressed doll, and I came. What? Oh, God damn it. I did such a good job with this. Uh, instead, her mouth broke into a smile for the first time. No, that's much better. Roughly six months later, I set a Guinness World Record in the most creative way to perv on a woman at work without it being sexual harassment. Uh, what? Um, I mean, I set a Guinness Book of World Records in tango. How? First, I started off backwards much, much like Josh did with chess. I looked at what some male pros did in their late careers, and they learned the female lead. I made a point to do this from the beginning. Now, this is super clever, and you gotta have a dick to do this. Um, imagine, dude, there's fucking decades of history, a way that tango is taught at this school. Then this rich, erect, possibly actually retarded and illiterate foreigner buys this girl in a move weirdly close to indentured servitude and he's telling her that he's going to deconstruct the skill of tango and win championships and then he forces her to teach him the female part first. Can you imagine? I don't think that she probably really believed in him too much. But understanding the female follow part first allowed me to subsequently learn an effective lead much faster. It also forced me to focus on footwork. This seemingly reverse approach was actually common in the late 1800s. Second, I did an inventory, separating implicit from explicit. So he categorized like, what did all the Meisters do? What did they have, on, what did they have in common? But what did they rely on when the stakes were the highest? Then, because everybody was in Buenos Aires and he was rich as hell, he met the greats in person. Uh, and he, a he asked his usual questions. What do they re recommend he do? What do they recommend he not do? What are the wastes of time? All those things we read, on, uh, read out when we did the question section. Because there was clearly explicit expertise, what they told him to do, and implicit expertise, what they did under pressure that they, that they weren't aware or couldn't verbalize. I recognized what I could become good at quickly if I leveraged past experiences. So this is like me with the wrestling and rugby. He said, given my background in wrestling and breakdancing, the, there were facets of tango I could learn faster than other people. I, I 
In short, I looked for the answer to three questions. What are the commonalities among the best competitors? Which of these aren't being actively taught in most classes? Which neglected skills could I get abnormally good at quickly? Then, this fucking bitch deconstructed the goddamn skill of tango when he was on vacation. Really, this is an excuse to hang out with a girl, and he won the world championships. The entire process worked, and a similar sequence can work for you, whether you're training for a job interview or Cirque du Soleil. Holy shit. So that's closing up the, the sequencing section. We got one more S after this. And then we're going to move into the cafe. We're going to wrap this whore up in a, in a nice little mnemonic. We're going to get on our damn way. But where are we? Where are we so far? Well, first, we deconstruct the skill. We spaghetti blast it to the component parts, uh, you know, onto a whiteboard, whatever. We interview people. We translate the other skills we have. Uh, you know, ultimately, we're a monkey playing with a Rubik's Cube. Next, we find the fucking 20%. What is the most important? What is the minimum amount of time we need to do to improve? Then, with sequencing, we think through how everything should be ordered. Is there a logical way we can progress this? Are there foundational skills that need to be mastered before the other skills? Maybe the way everybody does it is actually not like the way. Maybe it's shitty. If that's the case, don't be scared of starting opposite of conventional wisdom. But if we're we're putting that back in the mnemonic okay so we got the mnemonic to remember cafe and dis okay so we we walk up to starbucks we look at the sign cafe that's a weird fucking name cafe got it walk in two guys on the table dissing each other dis oh one hits him with a savage dis he explodes you get an ear in your eye deconstruction everybody cheers holy shit we got a champion we have selected the winner they raise his hand above his head selection but as champion, his first job is to en enact a new rule. Half of these people are getting drafted to fight vampires. But there's a little known fact that vampires actually can't kill short people. So he has to organize everybody by height. Okay, and the shortest people, the, the shortest half, they're going to go kill the vampires. So he's walking around the cafe. He's making people line up. Like, imagine the line leader in elementary school, like, walking out the door, like, oh, you in front, oh, you go in front, you, you go here, you go here, you, all by height. And that symbolizes sequencing. You have to have the right sequence. So if you want to continue this examination of the way, if you want to learn the full mnemonic, if you want to see how Tim conquered the world, you're going to have to tune in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.